Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, Russians are learning the hard way what happens when you take Putin's name in vain. So the law actually spells out that it applies to disrespect of a number of Russian institutions, including the State Duma, the Federation Council, the courts, the president, the flag, the anthem, Russia's emblem. So any disrespect of these institutions technically would fall under the law. We'll be speaking with Moscow Times editor Daniel Kozin about a new law against insulting the authorities. And later, if it's not demonstrations against trash disposal, then it's against new churches, restrictions on the internet, or land swaps. We've covered them all in the podcast, and now doctors are protesting. Real wages in Russia have declined for the past five years, um, and there's considerable um, grumbling about this. Uh, There's this slow burn of discontent in provinces. It's not certain that it's going to be uh, politically significant. We'll speak with Andrew Kramer from the New York Times about how doctors in rural Russia are speaking up against low wages. First up, Russians are contending with a new law that makes insulting the authorities a punishable offense. Several people have already been charged, and Roskomnadzor, the federal media watchdog, has told newspapers that two popular refrains at protests, Putin is a thief and United Russia is a party of crooks and thieves, are illegal under the new law. Joining us in the studio is Moscow Times editor Daniel Kozin, who is making his premiere on the podcast today. Daniel, thanks very much for joining us today in the studio. Thanks for having me. First of all, uh, probably the most high-profile individual was charged this week under the new legislation. Can you outline for listeners what happened? Yeah, so the person who was charged uh, was Leonid Volkov, who is an aide uh, for Alexei Navalny, uh, one of Russia's most prominent opposition leaders. Um, And under this new law that was passed uh, and signed by Putin in March, uh, people who express blatant disrespect of the authorities can be fined for up to 100,000 rubles, which is around $1,500 uh, on their first offense. Um, and in this case, it looks like Volkov was charged for a tweet that he made back in April, uh, in which he used a phrase that roughly translates to uh, Putin is an incredible dumbass. Uh, and the irony is that In this tweet, Volkov was actually citing a Russian uh, court case against a man in Novgorod who had used that same phrase uh, and became the first person to be charged under the new law. Uh, So it's this weird case in which an activist who cites a court case is fined for breaking the law that the court was initially applying. And we should note that it isn't just individuals who are having to, to react to this new legislation so far. Yeah, so last month, uh, there were actually two uh, news websites in Yaroslavl, uh, which were blocked temporarily for publishing a photo with graffiti uh, that called Putin an anti-gay slur. Um, So they didn't actually write the slur themselves. They just posted the photograph uh, for which they were blocked uh, by Roskomnadzor. And eventually they took the photo down and now they're back online. 
Um, but the interesting thing is that there were many uh, Russian media organizations that posted the graffiti and that didn't get warnings. So that sort of suge- I mean, that suggests that the authorities are are not going to be enforcing this this legislation in a in a blanket kind of way. There may be instances where they're they're sort of selectively choosing to uh, to to follow procedures. Yeah, I mean, as with uh, many pieces of legislation in Russia that are vaguely formulated, uh, we don't really know. Uh, when they will be applied. And a lot of times it will just depend on uh, local initiatives by prosecutors or security forces um, that decide uh, to, to prosecute individuals or media uh, under this new law. I think some listeners will probably hear that there is something or they'll sense that there's something quite dystopian or maybe even, well, or Orwellian about the law. How are civil society or opposition groups responding to it? So the law has been widely criticized in Russian civil society. Uh, the Presidential Council for Human Rights has called it unconstitutional uh, while it was still being considered in the Duma. Uh, and last month, there was an open letter written by around 100 Russian journalists who called uh, the law uh, the establishment of a regime of direct censorship. And they also said that it was against uh, freedom of speech, which is guaranteed by the Russian constitution. So far, only people who have criticized the president have been have been charged. Is there any way of knowing how broadly it could be applied? Do we know what the end game here is? So the law actually spells out uh, that it applies to disrespect of a number of Russian institutions, including the uh, State Duma, the Federation Council, the courts, the president, the flag, the anthem, uh, Russia's emblem. Uh, so any disrespect of, of, of these institutions technically would fall under the law. Uh, so far, as, as you said, uh, it's only been applied in cases in which uh, individuals speak about uh, President Putin. So at the end of the day, no one really knows uh, when and if they will expand the application um, because blatant disrespect is just a very vague formulation. Uh, it's, it, it's not defined in, in the law itself, so nobody knows um, when it applies. Uh, so it looks like violations will be judged on a case-by-case basis, which basically means that it's up to the initiative of local prosecutors um, to decide when and where they they apply it. So everyone's watching now to see how far they take it. And the implication is that if 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 individuals or news organizations don't know whether or not they're going to be uh, targeted under the legislation, that they'll ostensibly self-censor. That's what happened in uh, Yaroslavl uh, when these two uh, local news organizations were, were blocked temporarily. Uh, there were a number of others that had published the photographs that didn't get the warning from Roskomnadzor, but that ended up uh, taking down the photos themselves because they were afraid that they would be targeted next. We'll be watching this space. Daniel, thanks very much for joining us in the studio today. Thanks. Doctors in 20 regions of Russia have recently banded together to form the Alliance of Doctors Union in the hopes of encouraging the government to increase their pay. Public medical employees have staged around a dozen protests across the country in the hopes that the government will make good on a promise from 2012 to hike wages. Joining us on the line is Andrew Kramer, a New York Times reporter who recently traveled north of Moscow to meet some of those doctors and ambulance medics who are working in a region where a third of homes lack indoor plumbing. Andrew, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you for having me on. First of all, can you just tell us a little bit about Dr. Yuri Korovin, the protagonist of your story? Um, certainly. Uh, I uh, traveled to Akulovka, which is on the Moscow-St. Petersburg rail line, uh, about two and a half hours um, out of Moscow on the Sapsan fast train. 
um, to meet with uh, members of the Doctors Alliance Union uh, in, in this town. And uh, Dr. Karovin, who is a, a surgeon, uh, is an active member of the union and also the only remaining surgeon uh, at the hospital uh, in this town. So um, he was a logical um, person to speak with. We, we met um, in his office in the hospital and were able to talk for about uh, 15 uh, minutes about his work and his, his history um, at the town. And I'll get into later what, what happened, why we had to continue this conversation in his car outside the hospital. But uh, in the end, I got a good picture of, uh, of this uh, man. He's a, a doctor who's been working in, in uh, this provincial area of Russia for about 30 years after studying at a prestigious medical school in, in St. Petersburg. Um, and uh, he um, is very dedicated to his, his work, but also earns uh, surprisingly little money, uh, even by Russian standards, um, with his uh, his annual salary uh, is about eight eight thousand six hundred dollars, and uh, hence his monthly salary is less than um, less than a thousand dollars, and he makes very little for uh, working um, uh, uh, after hours or after his usual shift, which is one twenty four hour period. Sometimes he's called in for special operations and makes very little money for this work. Dr. Karovin had had certainly voted for for Putin. He he uh, he said that, and others uh, uh, made that point as well. Not not every doctor I, t- I talked to had um, had voted for Putin, um, but um, there there certainly were uh, were many doctors who who had. So this is a uh, an, an issue of them uh, uh, concern rising out of the economic uh, situation and not because of a, a, uh, an initial political view. You mentioned in passing that uh, the opposition leader Alexei Navalny is. Uh, has been a, a driving force behind this uh, alliance of, of doctors, or at least part of the initiative um, that the Dr. Krovin is is a member. Can you explain Navalny's role in this in this initiative and, and and why it has become a priority for him? Certainly. Now, my story didn't focus on Navalny's role, of course, um, as as you mentioned, but um, uh, Navalny um, has has said that uh, white collar professionals in in the provinces. Um, are uh, a focus of, of his work now, um, and, and particularly uh, professional unions, because uh, I, uh, I believe he's spoken about the, the uh, laws that protect the rights of professional unions. Um, it's also a politically interesting um, uh, theme, because real wages in Russia have declined for the past five years, um, and there's considerable um, grumbling about, about this. So it's a logical um, topic on which to uh, gain traction. Um, uh, there's this slow burn of discontent in the provinces. Um, it's not certain that it's going to be uh, politically significant, but um, it's certainly a, an area where where Navalny um, is interested in in making um, making a, an impact. There's just one other interesting aspect to this Doctors Alliance. Um, it's not. Uh, I, I was told it's not formally affiliated with uh, um, the Fund to Combat Corruption, uh, Navalny's organization, but the doctor in in um, in Moscow, who founded it, uh, an eye doctor, was the eye doctor who treated Navalny when, when he was um, uh, suffering from having uh, this green liquid splashed into his face uh, several years ago that, that damaged one of his eyes. So the connection is informal, but it's related to a doctor who had, had previously treated uh, Navalny as a patient. Can you explain why it is that the regional authorities haven't been able to, to, to come up with the cash to, to pay their, their medical professionals better? I mean, Russia has found the money to wage military interventions abroad in Syria, in Ukraine. Oil prices uh, are, are doing 
are doing better now and Russia relies heavily uh, on them to, to balance their budget. How is it that, that uh, Moscow can't figure out where to get the cash to pay these guys? Uh, well, the, uh, the Russia um, uh, spends uh, about 3% of uh, GDP, maybe a bit more, depending on how it's counted, on, um, on medical care which is low by international standards, or at least low by, by European standards, where um, uh, between six and nine is, is more typical. And then obviously the United States is an outlier spending um, in, in the mid to upper teens on, on health care. Um, and so in, in the U.S., the debate is maybe we spend too much. Maybe um, uh, cor- corporations, drug companies are, 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 are draining money from the economy um, through overspending on, on health care. Um, but in, in Russia, it's the opposite. Very little is spent. And, and it's a single-payer system um, in, in the sense that hospitals are reimbursed um, on a uh, per-patient or per-operation basis according to a, a, a fee schedule that's um, uh, unique to each region. Um, and in poor regions like the Novgorod region, these fees are quite low. Other regions, um, they have a mix of federal and regional money. Um, so the regional authorities will top up what's paid from the federal government. Um, but the uh, the money is is just very uh, very minimal uh, for for this socialized medical system and and uh, regional authorities say well this this is what you know we're we're receiving from the uh, health ministry and and we don't have any additional money here uh, locally to add to it so we you know we can't um, you know we can't pay any more and and um, why the priorities are set in this way it's uh, you know national defense is also um, uh, you know, a priority, but uh, I think the, uh, the this union would say that um, the resources need to be allocated differently. Is there any sense among the uh, the medical professionals that you spoke to that um, that that they're hopeful that their that their pay will be increased? Yes, uh, actually, um, there there was a um, a sense that some of these strikes have been successful. Uh, the uh, in a cool cut was a bit complicated. The outcome: some of the workers were assigned to a different hospital while remaining. Uh, for administrative purposes while remaining in their jobs in this town. And this resulted in a modest uh, pay increase. And also um, they were out from under their uh, loathed boss. Um, So these were positive outcomes. And and, uh, there was a sense some of these strikes might uh, and protests might have uh, results. And in this case, there was a a result. And um, as we saw in Yekaterinburg with the uh, church construction protest, um, there was at least a, a temporary reprieve there. So I think there's there's some optimism, um, and uh, this could, in, in, in principle, this could, could lead to a snowballing of protests uh, because there have been successes, but I don't want to predict the future. Andrew, thanks very much for chatting with us today. Sure, thank you very much. Bye. And to finish off, you've probably seen pictures of Russian children playing outside in sub-zero temperatures. That's par for the course in Siberia. But you probably haven't seen the footage of a Russian boy playing on a swing set next to a blazing fire. This clip of Dima swinging next to a raging inferno with the slightly eerie soundtrack went viral in Russia, maybe because it reminded users of the This Is Fine cartoon meme showing a dog lackadaisically drinking a coffee in a burning house. Emergency officials in the Yamal Nenets region told the Gavrit Moskva radio station that the flames were wrecking havoc on a building at a safe distance from Dima. An unidentified family member explained to local media that the boy just wanted to swing.
That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russophiles find us. Head over to the Moscow Times website for more on insulting the authorities and Navalny's trade unions, and, of course, other oddities from across Russia. I'm Jonathan Bryan. Our producer today was Pyotr Sauer, and thank you to CM Record Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. Thank you.